Kia ora, no mai, haere mai, and welcome to the Able Audio Podcast. Music technology provides musicians with exciting ways of making and recording music, but so often, both musicians and technology companies leave out the needs of disabled peoples. I'm Sam Morgan, a musician and producer based in Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I have a degenerative eye condition, which has meant that over the last few years, attending shows and going to gigs has become increasingly difficult. I'm also having to work out what it means for me in the coming years if I'm to lose my sight, how will I continue to make music in such a computer-focused space. This podcast seeks to bring to light the exciting work people are doing in this space, elevating the voices and concerns of disabled people in music technology. In each episode, I talk to a different music technologist about their practice, background in music, and how their work interacts with the world of disability. Welcome to the Able Audio Podcast, proudly brought to you by the New Zealand Music Commission. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Anthea Skinner. Anthea is a musicologist, researcher, and academic with lived experience of disability. She works at the University of Melbourne in Australia. As a child growing up with a disability, the school band was a place where Anthea could compete on a level playing field with her non-disabled peers and make like-minded friends. Despite her musical success, Anthea was often the only disabled student in any band or orchestra she played in. It was clear that her disabled peers did not have the same access to music education that she enjoyed. Today, Anthea's work at the University of Melbourne aims to help those with disabilities access the benefits of music education. Her latest research project, the Adaptive Music Bridging Program, is connecting disabled students with the latest in adaptive music technologies so they can enjoy the art of learning a musical instrument, regardless of disability. Here is my conversation with Anthea. What led you to thinking about accessibility and music? Well, I have been disabled since I was 12, and I also took up playing the clarinet when I was 12. So I guess um, those two sort of things came together very, very quickly for me. I just started playing clarinet when I became disabled, and all of a sudden I didn't have the strength to to hold it. Um, and I went back to playing recorder for a little while, which you know is a wonderful instrument, but not very cool when you're 12, you know, as opposed to the wild coolness of a clarinet. Uh, <laughs> so I guess you know I started out by doing really really basic things like adapting saxophone neck straps to work for a clarinet and things like that. Very very simple simple little things, but it made it possible for me personally to to continue playing. And what was the first piece of assistive music technology you came across? It probably was that 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 neck strap. You know, um, I started out with just a basic saxophone one, and I don't know if there's any musos out there. Saxophone ones are they're sort of made out of cord. They don't have much stretch in them. And then, so I, I was just using one of those and I was kind of tying it in knots around the base of my clarinet, around my thumb rest and things like that. And then I discovered someone had already invented one that was for clarinets and it was really sort of stretchy. It was made out of elastic and it gave my wrists a lot more support and my thumbs a lot more support. So I guess that was my first hint that it wasn't just me trying to do this, that mm. there were other people out there who, who you know, I could lean on for support and, and who had other ideas. Um, because I think, you know, when you're a young person with a disability or even when you're a music teacher with a dis- teaching someone with a disability, it's quite isolating. It's not particularly easy to find out, you know, where those technologies are available. Mm, I think um, last year I did a research project on how music technology can be, education can be more accessible for blind and low vision people. And I, I came across 
I didn't realize that um, the first kind of piece of assistive or adaptive music technology was actually like the Rhodes keyboards, and they were designed to be in soldiers' hospital beds. All right, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, and and way even before that, there were certainly you know before um, Louis Braille started in looking at at, at Braille music. They had all sorts of sort of, I can only use the word contraptions to, mm. to, to get across the concept of notated music to, to blind and, and people with low vision. I've got, a, I found a wonderful advertisement from like 1860 or something where it's like, you know, new, improved, easier model now only has 360 brass pieces. You know? <laughs> and I just picture these, these blind dudes trying to come, come to terms with their 360 brass pieces so they can type out a, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's something, and, and you're right, look, the blind community absolutely has led the way in music technology you know and I, I guess it's a it's there's a logic to it you know it, it, mm. it blind people are often blinded people with low vision are often music is seen as an appropriate job for them and also often have a great passion for it those two things don't necessarily go together uh, and I guess also because of the literacy thing with with music you know that community has been finding ways to get their ideas across through writing uh, mm. because that's what the rest of us have been relying on in the western world which is interesting because, you know, most of the world actually, you know, happily plays by ear. So there is this sort of, you know, in some ways, you know, blind folks should be leading us more in that direction maybe rather than having to come and meet us on our terms. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I think about these things anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So how did the Adaptive Music Bridging Program come about? So this is um, a collaboration between um, my employers at the University of Melbourne and the Melbourne Youth Orchestras, who are um, the leading providers of sort of instrumental ensemble education in Victoria, which is where I live in Australia. I attended MYO, Melbourne Youth Orchestras, when I was a kid. And I remember being, you know, I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. It was, you know, I couldn't play sport. The orchestra was my sports team. But I, you know, I often looked around and, and saw that I was one of very few, if often only, you know, obviously disabled kids in the room. So it had been in the back of my mind for a long time um, that, you know, making orchestras and band, school bands more accessible was something that was important to me. Uh, and, and when I started working at, at, at the University of Melbourne, MYO rehearses on our campus and so it was a very obvious sort of link you know they were my old on um, their old alumni they're right there next to me and they were very very excited you know they'd, they'd done some research themselves that had identified this as a problem that they, they weren't picking up a lot of you know as many disabled students as as you know the figures say that we have in our community so basically what we're doing is you know we're recognizing so myo has a whole swathe of, of ensembles right from beginners at sort of seven or eight years old right up through to kids who are at university studying music you know in their early 20s but to join one of those beginner bands you need to have had a few years of instrumental lessons and what we realized was that for a lot of kids with disabilities that wasn't accessible there were no teachers to teach them they didn't have access to accessible instruments so we're kind of developing a bridging program that gives them that first two years of learning experience so that they can then be integrated into myo's mainstream uh, ensembles as they get older and improve, which is really important because, you know, having that pathway into a mainstream setting is 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 really important, I think. So do you um, provide um, those two years? What does that look like? Do, like, are there private teachers that are introduced to assistive technologies? Or Yeah, sure. So I'm going to start by saying we are very early in this project. So we have auditioned the kids. They will be in the classroom for the first time in February. So when I say, what are we doing? There's kind of, you know, we have plans, but they're not actually sitting in the classroom doing them yet. But essentially our plan is to have, um, uh, I guess, sort of two small groups that overlap each other. So, you know, some kids are in both groups. Um, so 
and that's to deal with the different support level that the various kids need. So some kids are playing highly, highly adaptive instruments where there are no teachers uh, and where, to be honest, we're importing the instruments from overseas because they aren't in, in the country. So we're going to provide those kids with lessons, small group lessons, just like you would in school. And then there'll be other kids who we assess who might be playing a slightly modified saxophone or like I was, you know, using extra braces and stands. They'll be able to go to a, a mainstream teacher and we can offer that teacher support, you know. Uh, but then we will also have, so that's, so, so, so before the break, the kids who come in and, and need the, the sort of the group lessons will come in and then they'll have morning tea. And then after the break, the other kids will come in and they'll have like a small ensemble where the two groups come together. The kids who are having private lessons out in the community and the kids who we're having private lessons with at the thing. And they'll form just like a very mini, very beginners band, you know, mm -hmm. um, with sort of, you know, eight to 10 kids just to give them that experience of playing in a group, you know, for a lot of kids with disability, just that social experience, A, it's a wonderful thing, but B, it's not something that necessarily comes as easily to them as it might for kids without a disability, sitting still, um, concentrating, not running around the room, taking turns, all of those kind of things, being in front of an audience, you know, mm. loud noises, having other kids in the room make loud noises, you know, mm. all of those things that kids need to get used to. So it would also give them an experience of, of that kind of thing before they're joining the sort of mainstream group. That's the idea. So have you thought about what kind of genres will be played at all? Or But we're very much following the path of, of Melbourne Youth Orchestras and they have they have concert bands, they have orchestras, and it's very much, I guess, well, A, it's age appropriate because, like I said, some of the kids, they come in at eight and by the time they graduate, they're 21, so obviously their musical instruments, musical in interests, I would hope, have changed slightly, you know. Mm. But I guess really think about what you hear at, at any school band. It is just about getting those kids a broad, you know, background so that all of the kids at some point are going to play something that interests them and probably at some point are going to play something that bores them because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we all have different tastes and that's <coughs> excuse me and that's actually a really important part of learning to play in an ensemble you don't get to play your favorite song every time mm, mm. so you know they do they do sort of like classical stuff the older kids do you know serious classical stuff they might do you know tv theme songs you know um we're in melbourne we're um we're afl mad here so you know football theme songs those kind of things it's just about fostering a love of music in them really yeah and it seems like there's a huge emphasis on kind of like inclusion and kind of the mainstream way of doing things yeah but th th that's very true you know and it's kind of strange because in some ways you know an orchestra is quite an elitist form of mm. art you know and and i guess we kind of are following that kind of paralympic idea that yes everyone should get to come along and have a go but for the kids for whom this becomes a passion there needs to be a pathway for them to to, to keep moving forward and that's the same for any kid joining a school band disabled or otherwise some are going to come in for a year they're going to hate it. They're going to leave. Some are going to come in for three or four years and make friends and, you know, maybe join a community band when they grow up, maybe not. And mm. others might make a career out of it or become music yeah. teachers or, you know, composers. Or And so it really is just about giving kids that, that underlying education to allow them to make those decisions as they get older. And I think although we are concentrating on the mainstream, it is also really important that the kids that we work with know that they're not the first disabled kids to make music or the first disabled people to make music. They're building on a wonderful long tradition of disabled performers that goes back hundreds of years, you know. You know, I think most kids these days, certainly in Australia, can name their favourite Paralympian. But most, but I don't know many disabled kids who can name their favourite disabled musician. And and we'd love our kids to be able to come out and and you know to say, wow, you know, I'm a huge fan of you know Marjorie Lawrence or Zach Perlman or 
Ian Drury or, mm. you know, whoever. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's always, not always, but sometimes can be the case with Pathways. And speaking on Pathways, you've done a bit of research on Pathways for disabled musicians? Yeah, I guess that was a sort of a, a warm-up research study to this so that we actually understood what it was that was missing from the education of disabled people, you know, particularly in our home state of Victoria. And that was, so what we did was we interviewed um, a cohort of professional and semi-professional musicians with disability. Some had had them had that disability their entire lives. For some, it was new and they were learning to cope with it as, you know, professional musicians who had previously not been disabled. And basically, you know, we just interviewed them about their career experiences and what worked for them and what didn't. And, you know, one of the things that we did find was that finding a music teacher, especially if you had a very obvious disability, was, was very much luck of the draw. If you got lucky and you found someone who was willing and able to go out and do the research themselves to support you, which is a lot of work, then you're great. And if you had someone who either didn't have the time or the knowledge or the interest, then there was really nowhere else for you to go. You know, they found themselves just knocking on one door after another a random music teacher because there was, was no one. So I guess, you know, having talked to them about that study or talked to those musicians through that study, one of the things, you know, that my research time and I saw as a sort of, you know, is that someone needs to be able to do that. We need someone who is an expert in this field. And, well, I've been a disabled musician since I was 12, so, you know, and I have a PhD in music, so why not me? <laughs> yeah. why, not I be, why, why don't I become the one who sets that up and supports those ones, the, the next generation coming through so that, you know, um, so that they're not sort of groping in the dark in the same way I was for information. You know? Yeah, yeah. What would you like to see more of in music education in terms of accessibility and inclusion? Um, do you think, more awareness and training needs to happen so more teachers start to use adaptive music technologies or absolutely and look i i I experience a huge amount of goodwill for music teachers you know they want to be able to help they're just not sure how and and one of the things i find i'm situated in the creative arts and music therapy unit uh at my university although i'm not a music therapist but there's an information gap between music teachers and music therapists a lot of the time and kids with disabilities kind of fall into the middle Mm. you know because music therapy is a wonderful thing and it's really important and, and music therapists know about the equipment that is available, but it's not actually about providing music education. That's not, you know, that's that's not what it's designed to do and it's it's not what their field of expertise is. Music education is wonderful and really important and, you know, certainly in Australia, our universities don't train our music teachers to support people with disability. It's not part of their training. We would mm. like to change that. And we, we are changing that slowly, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, for me, there is this sort of information gap that's 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 really important. And, and the other thing, too, is, I guess, understanding what you need from adaptive equipment in music, you know. I think a lot of both designers and, 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 and maybe even sort of therapists focus on or confuse perhaps accessibility with easy to play. Instruments for professional musicians are never easy to play. If you're playing it with your eyes or you're playing it without hands or whatever it is, what, what, however it makes it, that actually doesn't make it easier to play. In fact, it makes it harder because, you yeah. know, the rest of us have 10 fingers, you know, mm. and that makes that makes playing instruments really easy. Yeah. So um, if you give someone an instrument where on the first day they can master everything it can do, yeah. well, what do they do on the second day? What happens when their skills improve? How do you make sure that just like someone playing a violin who can keep learning and keep improving and keep becoming more musical for their entire lives, if they wish, mm. you know, that is the kind of equipment that we, we actually need. And it's it's beginning to become available now, you know. it's mm. um, But, yeah, so I guess it's, yeah, 
accessible and easy to play, I guess, are not the same thing. And I think that's that's really important to remember. Yeah, I think I saw on the website there was um, you were using a piece of music technology called iHarp. Yeah, yes, an iHarp. So yeah, that's that's a wonderful. It's it's basically it's just a, a soft computer software that attaches to um, an eye tracker, um, same as you would use to control your mouse um, if you don't use your hands to do that. And you basically, you, you use that to change notes and volume in real time in performance. And, you know, that provides something, you know, that's a real game changer for people who have very little movement, you know. But one thing, and I guess this is where the sort of music therapy and the music education come together, one thing that I, as a music, you know, as a musician hadn't thought of about this is once we bring it into the room with with, with kids who are used to using eye trackers, one of the big reasons kids are kind of often hesitant to use eye trackers to communicate is that they're slow. You have to halt over a little before it picks it up. Music programs are specifically designed to work in real time. It's, they're one of the few ways that kids can actually use an eye tracker and it works instantly. Yeah. You move your eyes and it's going to play that note right now, this second, no lag or as, you know, as little lag as is, you know, undetectable lag, you know. Mm. Sorry, latency is a big discussion in our field. The minute you say no lag, someone is going to come up and go, no, but there is. Yeah. It's just a millisecond. And it's like, no. yeah. uh, anyway, um, but yeah, so even though, you know, we're not using it as a, as a therapy, you actually find kids all of a sudden much more willing to explore, you know, their um, AAC devices, their assistive communication devices uh, using iTracker because they now know that they can use it to play music as well and it's that mm. really instant feedback. So it's it's quite a lovely thing to see. I, I didn't anticipate that at all, but, you know, it works. Yeah. What other um, pieces of music technology are you excited about uh, maybe using in the program or you've been impressed by? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'm a big fan of the, um, it's an instrument called the Magic Flute, uh, which comes out of an organisation called My Breath, My Music in the Netherlands. And that's, um, it's a midi wind instrument and you don't need any hands or feet to play it. Uh, you literally just change notes by moving your head up and down. You do need to be able to blow, um, but that's about it. Um, and it's lovely too, because the mouthpiece, you know, with 3D printing is wonderfully uh, adaptive. You can, yeah. You can play it through anything up to and including a drinking straw. You know, yeah. so if you if you can if you can sip through it, you know, sip through a straw and blow through blow bubbles through a straw, you can pretty much play this instrument. I love that. Mm. We've also been working with Monash University here at, uh, in Melbourne um, at Sensi Lab um, with Dr. Alon Ilsa, who's invented the Air Sticks, which is wonderful. It's a directional controller, so think of it like a drumstick, uh, but you don't have to hit anything. Um, and basically, where you point it changes the note or changes whichever parameter you'd like it to change. Uh, and we were working with a professional dancer with cerebral palsy named Dr. Melinda Smith. Basically, you know, to, to, to test it out before we, we we used it with kids, you know, as I said, we want instruments that move through the whole career. So if it works with a professional performer, you know, it's going to work with 12-year-olds, theoretically. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, Melinda, who is also happens to be a poet, she just like, she's a wonderful creative artist who immediately blew our expectations out of the water of what this instrument could do. And we had, you know, we see it as a musical instrument. We were going to play drums and we were going to play harps. And and all of a sudden, you know, Melinda uses um, assistive communication. She has, she struggles to speak clearly. And all of a sudden she's programming poetry into it. So where she, you know, she points different parts of the room and it gives you different lines of poetry. And yeah, yeah. And so we were just like, okay, that's, you know, and, 
and I think that's one of the wonderful things about research and bringing in, you know, creatives to do these things. And they just, you know, it's that's not what I saw the technology doing at all. But hey, we're running with it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's great. Takes you in different directions, I suppose, eh? Exactly. That's, ex- that's exactly it, you know. And, you know, well, you know, any kind of creativity is wonderful for that. But I find, you know, those of us with disability, we just have that added edge because, you know, we do live slightly differently in the world. And therefore, we have slightly mm. different ideas to, the, to, to those of us around us. It's, mm. it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think just like, yeah, creative ways of thinking about things and almost, you know, um, we tend to kind of can make things a bit more comfortable. Yeah, that's working from bed and stuff, you know, like exactly, exactly. You know, we, you know, we, we wouldn't have Siri if, if, if they weren't disabled people who needed voice, you know, Mm. recognition Mm. and voice activation, you know, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I always say, especially working in the arts, you know, no one ever got any points for being just like anybody else, everybody else Yeah, in the arts. You know, the capacity to be different is actually what makes us good at what we do. How can people begin making their music education more accessible if they don't know where to start? If they don't know where to start? Well, the first thing, I guess, is to not make assumptions. I mean, it's it's an easy thing to say. Everyone has the capacity to be artistic. Everyone has the capacity to make music. Um, but, of course, that's not always so easy. Listen to the students you have. Often they already have the solution um, or their parents already have the solution. You know, um, I I work with a a wind repairer who recently had um, a kid with facial difference come in and he'd made himself nose plugs so that the air didn't come out his nose when he was playing because he couldn't stop it. And he just needed someone to help him make them stronger so they didn't break every time. You know, he knew what he knew what he needed. Mm. Now, Mm. as a music teacher, and if I had a kid with a similar disability come in, I would have immediately said to him, look, go play strings. Don't play a wind instrument. Well, this kid wanted to play a wind instrument and he's figured out how to do it. Mm, and so mm. if we just listen to him then we've fixed it you know it's mm. it's kind of that simple um but finding that you know reach out to to adults with disability you can reach out to me you know um it's my job to, to help make these things you know i get cold calls all the time from people saying look i've got this student i don't know what to do you know yeah, yeah. um or or i am this student i don't know what to do you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. um so look you know, and, and, and there are and he, here at Arts Access Australia. I'm sure you um, forgive me. I don't know what the equivalent is in New Zealand, but I'm sure there are sort of support organisations that might be able to point you in the right direction, sort of disability mm. arts organisations. But yeah, ask around and 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 don't assume it's not possible because because mm. it is. Yeah, because it is. I really enjoyed hearing how Anthea has drawn on her personal experience, acknowledging the opportunities she had growing up and trying to find ways to give those same opportunities to other disabled people. The discussions around music technology treat technology not as something exciting in itself to engage with, but rather something that can help facilitate wider participation in music making.